Hello, G fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I am Brian Scherzel. And I'm Nathan Marchand. And welcome to Kaiju Vision's G-Fest 25 panel. We are recording live from the Crown Plaza O'Hare in Rosemont, Illinois. This is a special episode titled Godzilla and the Japanese National Spirit. First, we'll introduce ourselves. I am the editor and director at Kaiju Vision Radio. I also shoot all the scenic videos featured on our YouTube channel. I love classic and foreign films. I graduated with honors from Wabash College where I received a BA in political science concentrating in international relations. I then received my master's of public administration from the School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University Bloomington, concentrating in comparative politics and international affairs. In 2006, I was in a final seminar class on Hurricane Katrina, which had just happened at that time, and I learned about that extensively. When I researched 311, I also saw many parallels to Hurricane Katrina. Some of my favorite subjects and studies include NATO, the European Union, European history, globalization, urban American history, non-democratic regimes, and national and international security concerns. I seem to be the only one with an international affairs background to have analyzed the Godzilla movies, and I was extremely excited to discover all of these movies have to say in the area of thought that this is. I am also a violinist and a video gamer. I created a playthrough for uh, Final Fantasy Tactics for original PlayStation, and that whole thing is on YouTube. Uh, the channel is called Final Fantasy Tactics Complete Playthrough and Transcript. I'm a professional writer. I attended Taylor University, Fort Wayne, which had one of the best writing programs in the country. I learned how to be a freelance writer, a journalist, and a novelist, among other things. My first novel, Pandora's Box, was published in 2010 by Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy. Since then, I've become a hybrid author, having been both traditionally published and self-published. Two of my books are about kaiju. One is a novella entitled Destroyer, which I co-authored with our mutual friends and fellow podcasters, Natasha Hayden, Timothy Deal, and Nick Hayden. The other is actually a short story anthology, The Worlds of Nathan Marchand. The last tentpole story in that collection is a post-apocalyptic kaiju tale. I have a YouTube channel with about 80 videos or so on various subjects, and my hobbies include gaming, ballroom dancing, and photography. My author website is NathanJSMarchand.com. Kaiju Vision Radio is a nexus of current events, international affairs, globalization, history, culture, national and international security, and of course, cinema. We examine the Japanese national spirit because that is really interesting. Godzilla is that interesting too. And Godzilla is one of the most important cultural ambassadors for Japan. He is the perfect vehicle to use in order to examine Japan. We concentrate on stories and writing more than most podcasts, although we do address the monsters and the special effects as well. One of our objectives is to go above and beyond what other kaiju podcasts had previously done. We also share the G-Fest and G-Fan mission of international understanding through Godzilla. Our YouTube channel has videos of places mostly from the same county where we record and produce our podcast, which is Fort Wayne, Indiana. We have produced a huge amount of content in the past year, releasing one episode per week. No one's ever done that, especially at this production value. Our Shin Godzilla episode is our best episode, which was the 37th weekly episode release in a row. That's almost eight and a half months straight of content. We covered the entire Godzilla series chronologically and will add in new episodes for, uh, for the new movies as they are released. The episodes of the podcast have a unique structure. In part one of the, each episode, we describe but not summarize the movie. And it's an analysis tailored to kaiju movies to arm the listener with the facts. At last, a way to compare these movies to each other. In part two, we discuss and give our opinions on the movie. In part three, we select one or more issues related to Japan that were either brought up in the movie or were going on in Japan at the time the film was released. For instance, in our episode on Godzilla Raids Again, we talk about the Japanese Self-Defense Forces, or the JSDF, and we talk about mainly how they are predicted or depicted in the Godzilla movies, and their post-war history, and the challenges that they face today. 
a side effect of the, of the podcast is that it's raising the bar for how to talk about these movies within the fandom. We're also showing people unfamiliar with Godzilla that there's much more to these movies. We like the action and stuff. Uh, we like the action and stuff. Ju- uh, we like the action stuff just as much as the next fan, but we like something else going on so that we have more to reflect on. It makes it more meaningful. As we've said on the podcast, we don't have a specific agenda, but rather than that, we're trying to pair reality with facts. We really love the material too much than to try to build an agenda off of it. It's a, this is an effort to concentrate on the international affairs-related part of Godzilla. We're looking at what the situation is right now and using that as a lens to look at the past. Not that we're happy with how things are going in the world right now, but we do have to analyze the challenges that we're facing. That's why we did this chronologically, in order to learn about the history as it goes. Doing the related topics fits in with this series of movies so well. The messages they have are very interesting to talk about. They give us a new layer of what to think about as we're watching. A lot of the connections with the related topics that are paired with the movies, I sort of figured out on my own, or I just made a highly educated guess. As Japan changes, Godzilla changes along with it. It's a good idea to think of Japan and Godzilla as constantly changing and evolving. Globalization and neo-colonialism continue to change Japan. Japan has built up a great deal of so-called soft power with its movies, its media, and Japan is now converting that soft power into hard power. Things have dramatically changed since around 2000, 2001, especially with regards to national security. One issue that we've run into is the overwhelming influence of nostalgia. One example would be how the BBC and other British entertainment have such a huge effect on what people think of when they think of the UK. However, reality is uh, reality in the UK is not the same as what is depicted in that entertainment. The same works for Japan via Cool Japan and all the other entertainment that Japan creates. Nostalgia has too much influence on what we think about Japan, and we need to recognize that Cool Japan is not the reality. Traveling to Japan is not like driving through the tunnel into Toontown in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Japan isn't a magical land filled with Pokemon and yokai and kaiju and samurai and not every restaurant has robots for waiters <laughs> and ninjas don't fight in the streets. You may remember a certain YouTuber who visited Japan and engaged in certain antics, namely laughing at someone who had committed suicide and throwing pokeballs at moving cars in the street. The real Japan is quite different. Real people live there and they have their own concerns. Nostalgia can also cause a sort of time distortion in our minds. Nostalgia and pop culture can also make us fall in love with the Japan of yesteryear. Nostalgia can color how you see things. It's a static view of something that's always changing. Sometimes we wish we could live in a time that we didn't experience, in a place that we did not live. Usually that time and place we think of is back when things were more innocent or simpler. Then we idealize it. Along with that, there may be a tendency to view time periods before or after that as a deviation from some sort of ideal. As a result, we want to return to that nostalgic area because it makes it feel safe. The nostalgic era often varies depending on when and what country you're in, what country you're thinking about, what age you are, and what your ideological beliefs are. For instance, baby boomers may be nostalgic about the 1950s or maybe perhaps some millennials may be nostalgic about the 1990s. But this is all mental exercise when we feel frustrated with the present and that we wish, when we wish things weren't like this. Right now, there are a lot of people all over the world who wish that things were different than they are. Once we remove the fog of nostalgia and pop culture, we are able to step back and remind ourselves that Japan is a long way from where it was when the war ended and when the first Godzilla movie was released after the occupation ended. But the thing is, we don't get to pick which Japan we have. For this panel, we will concentrate on the four movies with the most national spirit in them. Godzilla 1954, The Return of Godzilla, Shin Godzilla, and Godzilla vs. Gigan. But the Japanese national spirit can be seen in many other movies in the series besides these. For instance, Invasion of Astro Monster and King Kong... Oh, 
For instance, Invasion of Astro Monster and Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah both express feelings about outsiders. Godzilla vs. Megaguirus is about energy use and energy independence in Japan. Even some of the silly movies express the Japanese national spirit. All Monsters Attack is a critique of modern industrial society. Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla is an apology to Okinawa, which had just been returned to Japan. Primarily, we'll examine these first three movies across three dimensions. The JSDF, the U.S.-Japan alliance, and domestic issues in only the way Kaiju Vision Radio can. We'll address Godzilla vs. Gigan after that. With Godzilla 1954, Japan was only two years removed from the occupation. The U.S. had written them a new pacifistic constitution to prevent the nation from returning to pre-war imperialism. A long period of censorship ended with the Americans' departure. This allowed films to explore previously taboo subjects and say things the Japanese had long felt but never expressed. It's also noteworthy that 1954 was the year the Japanese self-defense forces were formed. Freed from censorship, this film was a catharsis for the native audience. It allowed them to rail against the United States for the firebombings and atomic bombings. In a stroke of genius, this was done without referring to the U.S. by name. The atomic, the atomic tests in the Pacific are mentioned, but the audience knew only the U.S. at the time had, con had conducted such tests. The Japanese got to be victims, which I'm sure was a sentiment shared by many. Given that these bombings targeted civilians and not soldiers, it's easy to see why they'd feel that way. It's well documented that the imagery of Godzilla's fiery rampage in Tokyo was inspired by the war. The theme really hits home when we see a young mother consoling her two children, saying they'll soon be with their father. It echoes the war, as I'm sure similar things were said by Japanese mothers, although those kids are too young to have been born during the war. Japan faces this crisis alone. Like in most Godzilla films, the alliance is never mentioned. They never ask for help from any other countries at any point. This reflects the post-occupation malaise the nation found itself in. Less than a decade after the war, and there were still many other nations who harbored resentment. Also, it was a humiliating defeat for the Japanese. Their military was fighting a holy war, driving the nation to the point of ruin and perhaps beyond. So in order to maintain their pride, the Japanese seek to save themselves. Which brings us to the JSDF. It's been argued that the SDF is a standing army in all but name. It was formed by classifying them as a police force in order to circumvent the new constitution, which forbade Japan from forming a military, a debate that continues to this day. Many, including director Shiro Honda, hated the war. Trust in the military was low. Pacifism was prominent. However, given that Honda served in the military, he knew a military response in any crisis, including a kaiju, was realistic. That's why the film's attitude toward the JSDF is arguably neutral. Their cannon, father, their cannon fodder against the seemingly unstoppable Godzilla, but there's also a scene where Japanese citizens, survivors of Godzilla's attack, cheer as fighter planes fruitlessly assault Godzilla with missiles. Ultimately, as would be repeated in every Japanese Godzilla film, the kaiju is defeated with a plan B that isn't mil entirely military-based. Just as Godzilla 1954 was steeped in the occupation era, 1984's The Return of Godzilla was steeped in the Cold War era. Much of this is lost in the Americanized version of the film, which is why it's such a blessing that it was finally made available officially in the U.S. in 2016. The film, the film was created during one of the most dangerous moments in the history of the Cold War, not since the Cuban Missile Crisis were the U.S. and Soviet Union so close to nuclear war. This movie presents a much different perspective on the Cold War, not that of the superpowers, but of a comparatively small nation caught in the middle. Godzilla destroys a Soviet submarine, heightening tensions between the Soviet Union, heightening tensions because the Soviet Union holds the U.S. responsible. It's not unlike a real-life event in 1983 where the Soviets shot down Korean airline flight 007, believing it to be a spy plane. In the film, Japan reveals secret knowledge that Godzilla has reappeared in order to ratchet down tensions between the superpowers. In real life, the Soviets had to admit fault when it came to KAL-007 in order to cool the situation. Back to the movie. 
the U.S. and Soviet Union pressured Japan to allow the use of nuclear weapons to kill Godzilla. The American diplomat, as a representative of Japan's closest ally, is more altruistic and respectful. The Soviet diplomat, on the other hand, is pushy and seems to have a percolating anger just beneath the surface. Undoubtedly, this is because the USSR lost a sub, but it could also be indicative of the nation's real-life goals of expanding communism. Keep in mind, the USSR had started to invade Japan toward the end of World War II, and that threat contributed to Japan's decision to surrender to the U.S. Prime Minister Mitomura, however, after what we can assume was a sleepless night of deep thought, tells both nations no, reiterating Japan's three non-nuclear principles. These were a government resolution adopted in 1967, which state, Japan shall neither possess nor manufacture nuclear weapons, nor shall it permit their introduction into Japanese territory. The PM is presented as a hero for doing this, even if it means risking tremendous damage to Japan and the loss of respect in the international community. So, Japan once again faces Godzilla alone. They employ their own secret weapon, the Super X, and other JSDF hardware to attack him. When a Soviet missile is accidentally launched at Tokyo, the Japanese contact the U.S. for help. The Americans launch an intercept missile to save the city. While this doesn't, while this doesn't seem to be an official activation of the alliance, it does demonstrate Japan's reliance on the U.S. to tackle certain problems they aren't equipped to handle. This also has the unintended consequence of reviving Godzilla. Well, we all knew that was going to happen. Regardless, it shows a progression from 30 years before. Similarly, the JSDF is not presented as powerless or incompetent cannon fodder. The Super X does succeed in halting Godzilla's rampage. It's implied that they're Japan's last line of defense against him, which is something to be proud of. It's far from the ambivalence of the 1954 film. Domestically, the 1980s weren't a hard time for Japan. The economy was great because the asset price bubble hadn't burst and caused the lost decade yet. It's an era that many Japanese may look back upon with fond nostalgia. Before we get to Shin Godzilla, I'll explain how Japan's place in the world has dramatically changed since that 1984 film. The JSDF has more challenges than at any other time in its history. A major source of difficulties is the need for the JSDF to protect Japanese territory, particularly with respect to the Senkaku Islands. Starting in about 2012, Chinese vessels and aircraft have routinely traveled into Japanese water and airspace dozens of times. It's China using its military to intimidate others. This necessitates a Japanese reaction in order to ward them off. In 2014, President Obama stated that the Senkaku Islands were, were sovereign Japanese territory and therefore covered under the security treaty. By doing this, he eliminated any gray areas with regard to this extremely tense area of the East China Sea. Japan had had to increase its military spending in recent years in order to augment the SDF's capability to deter China's military, the People's Liberation Army. We wish that Japan did not have to do this, but they must have to, and so they must work with the hand that they are dealt, so to speak. In just five years, China has grown and modernized its military into a formidable force. In under four years, the PLA has dredged reefs in the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea and has constructed them into artificial islands or unsinkable battleships. Some of these features of the bases include anti-ship missiles, surface-to-air missiles, electronic jammers, thousands of troops, fortifications, long runways for fighters and long-range bombers, and plenty of space uh, with, and runways with plenty of space for aircraft carriers and other warships. General Mattis has said that these actions by China make us question long-term goals considering that coercive behavior. $3.4 trillion of trade goes through the South China Sea every year, as does 25% of the world's crude oil. There's also a lot of oil and commercial fishing resources in the, in the South China Sea. China claims the entire South China Sea as its exclusive territorial waters, while the United States, Japan, Australia, the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, and others 
contend that China's claims are invalid. Many nations are worried about the actions and statements of China recently. Last year, the Permanent Court of Arbitration ruled that China's claims are indeed invalid, but China has completely ignored the ruling, though they promised at the beginning of the case that they would abide by whatever the court decided. The U.S. position on the South China Sea is that the U.S. not only protects its interests, but the interest of every other nation that trades in that region. The Indo-Pacific region is America's priority theater in the world, more than Eastern Europe or the Middle East. Regarding North Korea, they seem to have won a considerable propaganda victory. They are increasing their ability to create more nuclear material for weapons. They're updating their nuclear weapons facilities. They are working to hide these measures from us as well. When they purportedly blew up their testing facility on camera for us all, the explosions were assessed to be entirely cosmetic. China's, Russia's, and North Korea's goals are to normalize authoritarianism and make the world a more hospitable place for authoritarianism, which means eliminating the rules-based free and open international order supported by the United States and its allies. These developments have made the U.S.-Japan alliance more necessary than ever. The way we're dealing with this is to encourage in a policy of proactive pacifism. This means Japan proactively contributes to peace in the region. Japan is assuming a greater role in international operations in concert with other countries. This includes defensive sea lanes, deterrence of Chinese aggression and intimidation, more involvement in the UN peacekeeping operations, and more trade agreements with friendly democracies such as Australia, India, and others. Through these actions, Japan is participating in a community of democratic nations supporting and protecting each other's interests. In 2014, Japan reinterpreted Article 9 so that the JSDF would be able to assist us if we get into any problems in the region. Though I would prefer that Japan would have gone about this in a less controversial way, this did strengthen the alliance, and it helps the United States position in the region. Japan also faces challenges domestically. These include the highest public debt to GDP ratio in the world, an inverted population pyramid due to aging, low economic growth, and chronic deflation. In other words, Japan is in a late stage of development and is therefore in a vulnerable position. So between 1984 and 2016, the entire world changed, especially since 2008. Things have not gone all that well. Russia's invasion of Georgia and Crimea, Russia's collaboration with Bashar Assad of Syria, and China's actions in the East and South China Seas have become some of the worst events in recent history. I am not communicating these facts in order to scare you. These facts themselves are scary enough. So, now we come to a film that expresses the modern Japanese national spirit, Shin Godzilla. As Brian said, much has changed. While modern American audiences were, uh, were separated by time and culture with the previous films and had the benefit of hindsight, Shin has proven to be harder for them to process. We mentioned in our Shin Godzilla episode that this is the first of the big three Godzilla movies that was released almost immediately in the United States with the politics uncut. This is one reason why some American audiences have reacted to the film negatively. Seeing the original Godzilla movie from 1954 in 2006 really separates the viewer because we can say, yeah, that was what it was like back then. We thought the same thing in 2016 when the full version of 19 when the full version of The Return of Godzilla was released here. You could say that's what the Cold War was like back then. Then Shin then was but with Shin Godzilla, there's no lag at all. And we didn't have to watch a heavily edited version of the movie for 30 years before seeing the original. Now we're seeing the full version almost immediately, so the politics in the movie are about what's happening in the world right now. It makes one wonder how the 1954 or 1984 films would have been received if all the politics had been left in those for Americans to see. There could have been a significant negative reaction, especially with the 1954 original. Co-director Shinji Higuchi is aware of the reactions some foreign audiences have had to this movie. 
In his introduction for the film's special screening at last year's G-Fest, he reminded everyone that the film was made by the Japanese for the Japanese. Also, his partner in crime, writer-director Hideaki Anno, presents and examines a multitude of ideas in the movie without endorsing most of them. He also stuffs a lot of pseudo-symbolism into this film, which he does with most of his work, which opens it up more to interpretation. It's both realistic and satirical, an odd combination that really shouldn't work, but it does here. This helps to make the film more ambiguous. Hence why there are nationalistic, patriotic, and apolitical audiences who thought it endorsed their viewpoints. No wonder it was Japan's second highest grossing domestic film of 2016. The JSDF, unlike in most Godzilla films, is shown to be competent but overmatched. They're not simple cannon fodder for kaiju. They're patriotic, self-sacrificial self Japanese. It's stated three times that the military is simply doing its job. A commander even tells the film's hero, Yaguchi, not to thank him just before Operation Yashiori is implemented. This is a far cry from the neutral view of the military scene in the 1954 film. It's also a far cry from militarism and nationalism. It's realistic. Despite this, a purely military solution fails to stop Godzilla, as usual, and a plan B is enacted. More than ever, Japan needs its alliance with the U.S., yet they also want to exert more independence. This tension is felt throughout the film. Japan tries to solve the Godzilla crisis itself, but is unable to do so. Halfway through the film, the alliance is activated, and the U.S. sends stealth bombers to attack Godzilla. When that fails, the international community tells Japan nukes must be used. But Yaguchi leads an intrepid team of outcasts to find a non-nuclear solution. While they defiantly seek to solve the problem themselves, they do so by seeking help from other nations. France advocates for an extra day to synthesize the blood coagulant. The United States provides drones for the operation, and Germany lends them scientific knowledge. However, characters make verbal jabs at America, expressing their frustration with how the U.S. makes unilateral decisions about the safety of their nation. Some have taken these to be anti-American sentiments, forgetting this is a satire. Regardless, if this handful of remarks, if this handful of remarks means the film hates America, it loathes Japanese, uh, Japan's own government. The bloated bureaucracy takes the brunt of the satire. They're presented as inefficient and out of touch. They delay responding to Godzilla because they refuse to believe the, they were, uh, they, they delay responding to Godzilla because they refuse to believe it's anything but a common earthquake. That is, except for Yaguchi, who's immediately shut down. They assume the creature can't come ashore until it does. Even then, every action they take against Godzilla requires a meeting for approval. There's a darkly humorous scene where Prime Minister Okochi, his cabinet, and the military play a twisted game of telephone because the helicopter pilots need permission to open fire on Godzilla. Several politicians are preoccupied with how to save their face, with how to save face politically, or how they can use the crisis to further their ambitions. Their hesitancy leads to property damage and loss of life that could have been avoided. In the end, Yaguchi leads his band of rebels, the lone wolves, nerds, troublemakers, outcasts, academic heretics, and general pains in the bureaucracy that bypass all of this to solve the problem. This film was made in response to the 311 triple disasters. This was an unprecedented event in Japanese history. It's like Hurricane Katrina on steroids with a nuclear component. It was the fourth worst earthquake ever recorded on Earth. Worst earthquake to ever hit Japan. Severe damage to buildings, massive tsunami, damage to two nuclear plants, though Fukushima Daini ended up being fine. There was a, there was a dam failure. Floodwater, fires, a refinery fire on the shore of Tokyo Bay that lasted 10 or 11 days, whole towns destroyed, 300 hospitals destroyed, elderly and infirm evacuated from hospitals dying during the evacuation, 45,700 buildings destroyed, 144,300 buildings damaged, 15,895 people dead, 2,539 missing, 3,647 dead dead in the aftermath, 
many shrines and other cultural sites damaged or destroyed. It will take 23 years to process all the rubble. Refugees from the area streamed south. There were shortages of gasoline, water, and food in parts of the country. Survivors faced social stigmas, exclusion, depression, and alcoholism. A 46-foot tsunami hit the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, going over the 19-foot seawall uh, sea easily. This resulted in hydrogen air explosions, release of radioactive material, and level 7 meltdowns in three of the six reactors at the plant. This facility is only 142 miles northeast of the Tokyo metropolis, but only 40 miles outside of Greater Tokyo. The earthquake caused damage to electricity infrastructure, power shortages, rolling blackouts lasted 29 days, people stuck in elevators for days, flights into Tokyo were canceled, 10,000 stranded at Haneda Airport, 13,000 stranded at Narita Airport. Sendai Airport was hit by the tsunami, Wind was blowing generally west to west-northwest, so the radioactive cloud went over that part of northern Japan. Corporate headquarters are considering moving out of Tokyo because of the meltdowns. If the whole place blew up without the Fukushima 50 and the plant manager, it would have been much worse, and Tokyo would have had to be, would have had to be evacuated. During this catastrophic event, the Japanese government failed to respond quickly, adding to the death toll and damage. This, as you'd imagine, left a sour taste in the citizens' mouths. To say they were disappointed would be the understatement of the year. The public, the public backlash was so bad, then-Prime Minister Naoto Kan resigned. Just as Godzilla 1954 took imagery from the fire bombings and atomic bombings, Shin Godzilla has imagery inspired by 311. Go on YouTube... Go on YouTube and look up footage of the disasters. It will look eerily familiar. The sequence where Kamada-kun comes ashore through, the river, through a riverway, displacing boats and flooding streets. There are amateur videos of the tsunami hitting the Japanese shoreline that look like this. Later, there's an aerial shot of Tokyo in, the, in flames after Godzilla unleashes his atomic ray. This was inspired by photographs of the Fukushima Daiichi plant, nuclear power plant after its meltdown. The tanker trucks used to pump the blood coagulant into Godzilla are, as, part of, uh, as part of Operation Yashiori are the same models used to pump water into, uh, onto the Fukushima reactor to cool it. There, there are just a few, these are just a few examples. Godzilla in this film is essentially an extended metaphor for this disaster. I imagine for the domestic audience, these images were fresh, familiar, and frightening. Yaguchi and his band of rebels are partially meant to represent the, the Fukushima plant Yaguchi and his band of rebels are partially meant to represent Fukushima plant manager Masao Yoshida and the Fukushima 50, who bravely and self-sacrificially worked to stop the Fukushima meltdowns from getting a great deal worse. In Japan, they are the biggest heroes of 311. One fascinating thing in this movie that Brian noticed is during the scene where Keoko and Yoguchi is the scene. Uh, let me start over. One fascinating thing in this movie that Brian noticed is during the scene with Keoko and Yoguchi, where they're discussing the gravity of a nuclear weapon possibly being used on Tokyo. When referring to Godzilla, she stops to say, she starts to say the English word Godzilla says no in Japanese, then starts starts over saying Godzilla's Japanese name. The subtitles do not take note of this occurring, but it does happen. Our hypothesis about this is Kyoko is empathizing with the Japanese more now than they are in the, now that they are in such peril. She's part Japanese, and the Japanese part of her has activated, so to speak. When we first see her, she's much more American, but as she spends more time in Japan, she connects with them more and understands them better. Another thing he noticed is that, Cus is that the Cusley character from Shin Godzilla also, also played Rosenberg, the American diplomat, from The Return of Godzilla. Anyone else notice that? Same voice. The 1954 and 1984 and 2016 Godzilla movies are really Godzilla at his greatest significance. They instill gravity and a sense of awe in Godzilla. They're cinematic masterpieces. I can't imagine the Godzilla franchise without these three movies. The reviews of Shin Godzilla 
on that movie database are 50% depressing. <laughs> They're negative reviews and they pick on the wrong things. We go into much more detail on Shin Godzilla in episode 37 of the podcast, which is our best episode. We worked on it very hard. Uh, now that we've covered the, the three most important Godzilla films in relation to the Japanese national spirit, we'll cover a lesser entry in the series, because even some of the silly movies have a lot to say. In this case, we'll be taking a look at one of Brian's favorite Godzilla films, Godzilla vs. Gigan. It may not... It may not be one of uh, Shinichi Sekizawa's best movies, but it's definitely one of his best scripts. Frequent Godzilla writer Takeshi Kimura also contributed to the story uh, also of this as well. Besides some fascinating expressions of the Japanese national spirit, Sekizawa also injects a meta-commentary on Godzilla as a pop culture icon throughout the film, some of which expressed his frustration as a kaiju screenwriter at the time. Godzilla vs. Gigan seems like the 1963 Toho movie Matango, only combined with a Godzilla movie. I would think that this part of the story more likely came from Kimura than from Sekizawa, because Kimura wrote Matango, but that's only a guess on my part. The film was released on March 12, 1972, and there are a few events that happened during that period of time leading up to that release. First, there is World Children's Land. Well, Disneyland was opened in 1955 in Anaheim. Tokyo Disneyland was opened in 1983, so neither of those really lined up. But Disney World opened in Orlando on October 1st, 1971, which is very close to the release date of this film. The evidence that World's Children, World Children's Land could be a representation of Disney World is something I noticed, which is the monorail track in the theme park uh, that's in the movie. Uh, and Disney World has a monorail track, interestingly enough. Uh, next is the reference to World Children's Land being headquartered in Switzerland. This references the nature of multinational corporations and their ability to have their HQ in a shadowy place like Switzerland while having places of business all over the world. This lines up with the issues regarding Swiss banks and their shadowy characteristics as well. Our characters investigate World Children's Land and they hit a dead end when they come to Switzerland. The alien invaders have used this legal loophole on purpose in order to further conceal their intentions. Pretty smart of them. So this idea that multinational corporations have less accountability with this kind of arrangement. They're able to avoid the laws of other nations to an extent. Then there's Kubota, the head honcho of World Children's Land. When he meets with Gengo in his office towards the beginning of the movie, he uses more obvious English words than it may be any other time I've ever seen in the Showa series. It's, it seems like the language of globalization to me, this has to be intentional in order to further drive home the point of how these corporations insidiously penetrate into people's lives. The cleverest example of this, in my opinion, though, is the food. <laughs> the characters eat corn, and the other one is bananas. These foods are not native to Japan. The food market has been globalized, and formerly exotic foods have become commonplace. Isn't this like an invasion, right? Yet another type of invasion is that the movie seems to be connecting things to McDonald's. <laughs> Japan's first McDonald's interestingly opened on July 1st, 1971. The franchisee was Japanese, however, while McDonald's is headquartered here in Chicago. I can't help but think that there's a connection between how this was a big contemporary news development in Japan at the time, and so this somehow made its way into the story of the movie. McDonald's now has over 36,000 locations all over the world and is one of the most pervasive multinationals on earth. So of course McDonald's is the perfect archetype for multinationals. So besides the aliens invading, Disney's invading, McDonald's is invading, the English language is invading, and corn and bananas are invading. <laughs> now to the cockroaches. I love the cockroaches in this movie. I take it more symbolically than I take it literally. And I absolutely love it. Every time I see it, I almost want to clap every time I see this. <laughs> Rather than laugh at it, I laugh with it because I understand it. <laughs> Besides the obvious symbolism that the alien invaders are the cockroaches of their own world, the last ones to survive before the planet dies, 
there's also the fact that the cockroaches are a wonderful symbol for multinational corporations. They can survive anywhere, and they're impossible to kill. <laughs> this goes back to how they can headquarter themselves in other countries, and they often have so much money that they are very, they are very vulnerable to economic forces that other businesses could succumb to. This is so clever. When I watched this at a young age, this is the first Godzilla movie I ever saw in my life, I had never guess that any of these references would be to globalization until I learned about it in school and then examined this through a sort of different set of eyes. But this is so clever. Um, I, I, probably, I, I, mean, I obviously didn't see it when I was younger. A lot of Americans don't see it. But Japanese adults in the audience at the time this film was released, watching in the theaters, they might have picked up on it. When I was growing up, I could appreciate this movie for the action, especially the gripping scene where Godzilla is nearly killed. It's extremely effective. As a cinephile, though, I appreciate Jun Fukuda's phenomenal cinematography and camera work throughout the movie. It's modern, and the wonderful comic book style of the action is incredibly fitting to all the rest of the comic book properties that this movie has. And now, as an aficionado of international affairs and globalization, I can appreciate this movie from an ex from, for its extensive symbolism. And all these elements work together instead of making the movie seem like three separate movies. How many times I've seen this movie, I don't even know. And how I grew up with it and discovered more layers of meaning was really surprising and enjoyable. And it made me appreciate the movie much more. That is one big purpose of our podcast, is to get things like this across. Listen to our episode on Godzilla vs. Gigan, which is episode 17. It proves that this movie is grossly underestimated. Now to move on to Japan's near future. Next couple of years we have looking forward. There are a few exciting and important events. In 2019, Crown Prince Naruhito will be enthroned as the 216th Emperor of Japan. 2020 is an even bigger year for many reasons. Tokyo will hold its second Summer Olympics, and there's no doubt that Japan will be showcasing all of its achievement since it last hosted the Olympics in 1964. Also in 2020, it's possible that Japan could have its first constitutional referendum, which regards changes to Article 9. That same year, Japan is projected to enter a fiscal crisis. Japan's debt is running at 200% of GDP. There has always been an ongoing theory that in 2020, the Chinese military could attempt an invasion of Taiwan, which hopefully won't happen. Japan is going to be building three new SDF bases on Japanese islands in the East China Sea in the vicinity of the highly disputed Senkaku Islands. So that will be in progress. The United States is also rebalancing its naval capabilities in East Asia. Plans include deployment of long-range missile defense interceptors in Guam and Alaska in order to defend against a missile attack from North Korea, adding new attack submarines to be home-based in Guam, basing new littoral combat ships in Singapore, and increasing the Navy's share of military spending in East Asia. In Okinawa, a long-term relocation of the U.S. Air Marine Corps Station Futenma out of the city of Jinawan and north to Henoko Bay is moving forward. This project has seen many political challenges, but recently these have been settled. We talk about the base relocation in episode 26, which covers Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla 2. Lastly, I want to mention how the U.S. and Japan face some incredibly serious challenges, but really, democracy all over the world is in danger. Democracy is fragile, and it must be defended or it will be extinguished. Pacifism is a great ideal to have, but it becomes very risky to be a pacifist when so many others do not practice pacifism and, in fact, consider it a weakness to take advantage of. The name of the game here is to not get caught being too vulnerable. Democratic nations and institutions all over the world are susceptible to authoritarianism, and without these institutions, our very lives could be at risk. Democracies must support each other and band together to defend their interests. And at the end of the day, this is what Shin Godzilla says to me. I agree with you wholeheartedly. This concludes our panel. 
and we will open it up to questions. Uh, please be courteous to others with questions and keep them as short so we can get to as many as possible. And then we'll repeat the question for the recording after it's been asked. Well, for me, it was possibly Shin God's. Well, the question was, what was the biggest underlying? Uh, the most surprising. Surprise, yeah, yeah. The surprise that we found, yes. Um, hmm. uh, for me, it was Geigen because, yeah, I mean, that was, that was a huge one for me. I remember when we, had a, when we had a meeting after you had, we've done some reading on, some academic reading on this, and he was, he, he, the, Brian had this glow, just like, Geigen means so much more to me now. <laughs> everybody's, everybody has their nostalgia movie, no? Everybody's got their first one that they ever saw, and everybody's got their own favorite one that they love yeah. to watch. Well, the for most. me, it was Terror of Mechagodzilla. Uh, let's see. Mm, this is that's kind of a hard question. We've seen so many things. It, it may very well be. and there was all, some... A lot of studying I've done on, on globalization, and after... I guess I had seen many of these movies again as I moved on, but when we started this project, we, I, I reviewed so many of these movies extensively and tried to keep looking more and more. Once I got an initial idea as to where the staircase was, then I had to go find it and keep going. And, and it would probably be Geigen, but uh, I've done so much studying on globalization and I've been to a NATO conference. I, I love like studying the European Union. Like the European Union is one of the most complicated, complex, convoluted things <laughs> anybody's ever seen in their lives. And, uh, and, and so this was an area that, that I was really used to. But it's awesome to just see something that you saw in childhood thinking it was just about comic books and about uh, this sort of symbolism with alien as a pop culture icon yeah. and alien invasions, outsiders, et cetera. But then coming into this globalization stuff, which yeah. that really does sound like Kimura. Kimura wrote Matango. Matango's mm -hmm. so awesome. Yeah. It really sounds like Kimura, something Kimura yeah. did. Yeah, and the, I mentioned the, the meta commentary stuff. Uh, we go into it in a lot more detail in the episode, but that was actually something really fascinating for me. Uh, there's all these little things, you know, the... By that point, Godzilla was a commercial property, and Sekizawa was running out of ideas about what to write about. He didn't even want to write the script for this because he said all the monsters have been done. And then, but he got roped into doing it, and so like you know that opening scene with the with the uh, Gango, Shukra, Mamago, yeah, you know, yeah, all that, around. you know, these very simple monsters that have obvious meaning because that makes them easily marketable. And so not only do I think that was because I was like, I am so frustrated trying to come up with new monsters. Yeah. It was his way of saying these executives have simplified God, tried to simplify Godzilla so he's easily advertised, missing the meaning that he was infused with. And you see, I would say you see this uh, symbolically later in the movie. In order for Godzilla, you know, the, you know, they have the Godzilla Tower built by the aliens. It's a commercialized caricature and it nearly kills Godzilla. Yeah, and it, then he has to destroy it yes, to get it, his strength back. It must be destroyed, yes. Uh, anybody else have a question? And that's interesting, too, because it goes into the whole like thing with, you know, is the movie saying, should McDonald's as a symbol be destroyed as well? As it? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, other than like, being kind of cool, at the very end of Shin Godzilla, we see his tail, and yeah. we see the little creatures coming out of the tail. Do you have any kind of insight on what that could possibly mean? <laughs> yes. Or is, it, or is um, that just something, something cool? Uh, Yes, I think it is. There's the whole thing about Godzilla morphing into, like, like as you fight Godzilla, Godzilla morphs into something that will attack that, that idea. And they, they do mention that in the movie very briefly. And so, okay, so humans are attacking him. So he's morphing into something that will destroy the humans because he's, he's upping the ante every time. So the, I, what I'm getting is the idea is, is that he's breaking up into all of these small little monster-looking things. And they seem to be humanoid-ish in nature, too. Almost xenomorph-like. Yeah, and, and, and it's only because they froze him that that process stopped. Mm -hmm. But that's what I got, was that these, all, all these things would break off of him, and he would break into all these pieces, and then they would go about attacking humans and be just as... But it has just the same vicious indestructibility, seemingly, as Shin Godzilla does. My theory is related to that. It's stated at one point in the movie that, the, that Shin Godzilla can reproduce asexually. So I think that's what it is. He's just spawning them off of himself. Any more? Uh, what do you think that could mean, like, politically? 
Uh, we the question was, you know, could this have any political significance? I, I think we came across some stuff that argued it might be a commentary on uh, conformity. Conformity. Because yeah. you have a character uh, who's kind of a frenemy of Yaguchi, and he's always just towing, towing the line, just always going with what the politicians are saying and not thinking outside the box. So. So he's used as a foil for Yaguchi. So, so we've read someplace that the creatures coming off the tail might uh, might be a visual metaphor for that. Mm-hmm. You had your hand up? Oh, uh, yeah, that's the last question. I wanted to ask you guys, like, as a listener, um, it has less to do with, like, the national spirit, but um, I've noticed in, like, um, like Destroy the Monsters and uh, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, Taylor Mechagodzilla, there's, like, this obsession with yeah the question was about uh yeah the question was about interpol agents uh, has anybody ever seen the msg3k episode writing with death oh my gosh <laughs> the, the agent works for Intersect. Yes. <laughs> now, this movie was from the uh, 1970s, 76 ish. Something like that. It was something a, like that, yeah. It was, it was a TV show called Gemini Man, and they, they combined, I think, the first and maybe third or fourth episode. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, kind of like Time like of the, the Apes. Yeah, it yeah. seems like the 70s had a really big. Uh, fascination with Interpol as something, <laughs> some sort of uh, international <laughs> police force kind of thing that, that uh, for better or for worse, never ended up actually having as much power as it, <laughs> as it and they thought it could have ended up. But that was back when the UN had more power. That was back when a lot of things were really different. The 70s were a very odd decade of, of uh, you know, of international things going on. You know, like I think the Interpol agents, it sort of goes along with how people talked about like black UN helicopters and stuff. It, it's sort of like a, it became just sort of a, uh, a, a thread in, in, in entertainment. And it was a fad. And, and like the seventies, it yeah. just sort of died out. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. That's all the time we have yes. for questions. Thanks for coming to our panel today. We'd like to thank our patrons, Kiroe Toshi and Sean Stiff for helping to make this podcast possible. And now that we've that you've had a taste of what this podcast is like, we hope you'll listen to our episodes on the Godzilla movies. The easiest and best place is to go to kaijuvision.com. Everything's there. Season 2 will premiere on September 19th with the wonderful Ashura Honda, Ashura Honda-directed sci-fi film The Mysterians from 1957.